Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast and our special Valentine's Day episode. Your heartthrob is problematic. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And thanks for tuning in with us. Today we're going to be talking about fictional character Valentines. Just the character, not the actor who plays them. Not necessarily fan fiction or fan tropes, but canonical characters and whether or not they'd make good boyfriends or girlfriends. So Karen, who are we starting out with? So I'm going to start with Angel, the vampire from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Primarily his character on the television show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Although I'm going to go into his backstory a little, which was covered across Buffy and Angel, his spinoff show. So this one's a bit difficult for me because uh, at the time that the show was airing weekly and I was obsessed, I loved Angel... But looking back, my heartthrob was problematic. You changed your mind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, Angel was born as Liam in 1727 in Ireland, where he fell in love with a woman and then was rejected by her and therefore decided he found the women of his era boring and unexciting and he did not want to date them and then became a drunk layabout. Not exactly sure if he wore a fedora or not, but it would not be surprising. And so he is turned by Darla after a bar fight, and uh, it's basically the embodiment of insecure masculinity. And so inhabited by a demon for hundreds of years, and then having his soul restored, he later survives on rat blood because he doesn't want to eat humans anymore. He's a sad sack. And he's visited by Whistler, who tries to help him restore his karma by looking after the new slayer, Buffy. So, he stalks Buffy. He's uh, at the age of 269. But then when he sees her, he falls in love at first sight uh, without talking to her. Uh, And she's 16 years old. And one of the major points of the show is that she's... A normal 16-year-old girl, feminine and kind of ditzy and immature. So she's not a particularly mature 16-year-old girl. Not that that would make it okay. So um, he stalks her until she falls in love with him. But he's, he stalks her to help her. And so when they fall in love, they eventually have the sex, which is not rape on the show. It's not considered rape uh, for a, an elderly vampire to... Uh, have sex with a 16-year-old girl. She might have been 17 at the time. Anyway, after orgasming with Buffy's magic vagina, (laughs) he has his soul taken away again because the curse that restored his soul was until he could experience a moment of true happiness. The curse was for him to suffer with the deeds that he had committed as Mm -hmm. a demon. And so his sex with Buffy constituted a moment of pure happiness and then he proceeds to kill the people who try to support her uh and torture her because his whole deal was torturing women uh as a demon and so whether or not that can be blamed on his character is kind of questionable uh because he's inhabited by a demon it's not really his fault but it is definitely his fault that a 270 year old man slept with a 16 year old girl and then tormented her. So, yeah. My former fave. 
the former heartthrob. Problematic. <laughs> Majorly problematic. Not to mention he's just kind of brooding and whiny uh, and all around annoying. So, and he's very cryptic. He could help Buffy if he kind of just explained what the hell he was trying to do. But he talks and riddles to her, which I guess is what he's trying to impress her. How do you impress a 16-year-old girl? I don't know. Be dark and mysterious. <laughs> Angel, Liam, problematic. So how about you? Who's your heartthrob? You know, going back to adolescence, um, when I first read The Great Gatsby in English class in high school, I thought that Nick Carraway was the perfect guy because he was so nice and sweet and he valued honesty above all things. But as I got older and I, you know, looked back and I, I read some literary criticism of the character, I realized that um, if you read between the lines, he's probably gay. So he'd probably be a better Valentine for someone of the dude mm-hmm. persuasion. And not me, unfortunately. <laughs> so I actually, um, in my sophomore year of high school, wrote an essay on the homosexual implications towards Nick Carraway. I think my biggest reach mm-hmm. was that Jordan was actually a male character because of the neutral name. Well, some people say she was a lesbian. Yeah, and I think that's probably more of a, a more accurate read. But uh, there are two situations in particular. One that I think is is kind of like a well-known gay implication, which is keep your hands off the lever scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which I'll read. So uh, in chapter two, come to lunch someday, he suggested, as we groaned down the elevator. Where? Anywhere. Keep your hands off the lever, snapped the elevator boy. I beg your pardon, said Mr. McKee with dignity. I didn't know I was touching it. All right, I agreed. I'll be glad to. I was standing beside his bed, and he was sitting up between the sheets, clad in his underwear, with a great portfolio in his hands, etc. And so, if you read between the lines, uh, keep your hands off the lever, could be keep your hands off the wiener, and uh, that they were trying to hook up in the elevator, and the elevator boy was not happy about it. So later they went mm-hmm. back to Mr. McKee's apartment, where they were sitting on the bed with Mr. McKee clad in his underwear, chatting. With a great portfolio in his hands. <laughs> yeah, and I think that um, in the, several of the movie adaptations, and the, the first two that are more well-known, um, they kind of move away from that. But in the, the Baz Luhrmann one, they do hint at it a, a little bit. But not entirely. If you know what you're looking for, I think it's there a little bit slightly implied. But I think that's true to the book because Mm -hmm. it's not explicit in the book either. Yeah, It's gently implied. And so Mm -hmm. the next part, which I think other people may not have read into as much as I did. But uh, the next part is in Chapter 7. Nick Carraway is taking the train and it's, uh, it's particularly hot out. The lady walks in to whatever he's doing and says, oh my. And he tries to make it clear that he's not interested in her handbag. But then, hot, said the conductor to familiar faces, some weather. Hot, hot, hot. Is it hot enough for you? Is it hot? Is it? My communication ticket came back to me with a dark stain from his hand that anyone should care in this heat whose flushed lips he kissed, whose head made damp the pajama pocket over his heart. And then it just moves on to being back at the Buchanan's. That's 
A little bit more than implied, I think. Right. Reading it again. Yeah. I think that's pretty clear. The flush lips that he kissed, I assume, are Gatsby's, and that no one should care. Nick, Nick's. Oh my gosh, Nick's. yes, of course. Of of all the like deep reading I do in between the lines, I can't get the surface part correct. This is That's very okay. like me. Yeah. And then just one more thing while we're on this. Mm-hmm. Um, some people have taken this interpretation a little bit farther to say that he was in love with Gatsby. I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, I think that's a stretch. Uh, I think just because you're gay doesn't mean, or bisexual or bicurious, doesn't mean mm-hmm. that you're in love with every man you find compelling, necessarily. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't see it in the text. This uh, romantic love. I think he's more kind of fascinated, but also mm-hmm. kind of repelled. As everyone was, right? It seems. Yeah. yeah. Not so problematic. Maybe a little closeted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Indeed. Yeah. So Nick Carraway gets the, the feminist green light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if he's honest about who else he's with when he's not with you. <laughs> oh, good point. He's a little bit on the DL, isn't he? I mean, if you're going to go with the theory that Jordan Baker is a lesbian and they're both covering for each other then she probably kind of knew. <laughs> right. So. Right. Yeah. So in that way, if, if you if you go with that interpretation, then he was already being honest because they both kind of knew about the other. So. Right. But yeah. But if he was deceiving Jordan, then perhaps not a good boyfriend and maybe there's some red flags mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So. Who's next? Up next is Thor. Specifically... The first Thor movie plot. Um, mm-hmm. And this was a movie that was written in particular for me. Uh, I'm pretty sure the um, script writers had me in particular in mind when they were writing it. Um, <laughs> because For Karen. <laughs> yes, exactly. And other uh, lady scientists who like hunky dudes. But um, anyway, in the movie Thor... Thor is exiled to Earth by his daddy for being too arrogant, and he's cast to Earth where he meets Dr. Jane Foster, an astrophysicist, who is played by Natalie Portman, who is a smart lady, Mm -hmm. and her assistant Darcy Lewis, who is played by awesome lady Kat Denning. So these two amazingly awesome ladies um, are smarty pants, like super smarty pants. And then uh, they take care of Thor, who makes sure to look incredibly sexy and shirtless for them on occasion. And then when they talk, uh, Thor, using his astrophysical knowledge, being a spaceman, reassures Dr. Foster that she is intelligent and her theories are correct and she is just really smart and she should believe in herself. And then also he falls in love with how smart she is, uh, and, and her, all of her, and her smartness. And because of this romantic bond, he decides to try to save Earth when the Destroyer comes to destroy... I guess he's supposed to destroy Thor, but Thor doesn't care, except for Dr. Foster, who's so cool and smart. Um, and so then he cares. And then... Uh, Jane 
Dr. Foster helps him get home. And, you know, sexy god falls in love with smart research scientist lady. I think it was basically written for me. Marvel knows their audience. <laughs> Not problematic. Mm-hmm. A plus feminism. No bias for me. Clearly, mm-hmm. this is just purely Who's objective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I don't think there are any questions for that one. Unless you have some. No, um, I haven't seen Thor. Maybe I should now. Yeah, um, I think I, you should see I, it through that lens. I was going to watch it because of because uh, I think Christopher Eccleston's the villain in the second one or something. Is he? The third one. I don't know. Oh, I've only watched that one. Why should I watch anymore? Yeah. <laughs> well, that was already the best movie. So. <laughs> so next on my list is uh, Jonathan Strange, titular character from the book Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke. And it mm-hmm. was also made into a BBC miniseries over the summer, which is also excellent and mostly true to the book. Really enjoyed both uh, incarnations of that. And going with another literary character... I feel like Jonathan Strange is a very good hero, a uh, very fun character, and, you know, another, I think, romantic ideal for the most part. Um, and when we first meet Jonathan Strange, um, he's, he's courting this woman, Arabella Woodhope, and they're both very well off, money-wise. The book has a very uh, wry class commentary that I kind of saw again upon, you know, a second reading or... It, they really kind of played it up in the in the TV show, which is interesting. And she tells him that she's only going to marry him if he has a job. She doesn't like the idea of him kind of hanging around the house and getting in her business. So he considers a few different things, and he settles upon becoming a magician for um, various reasons, mainly because it's his destiny that he didn't know at first. And she marries him, and they have a very good marriage. I think they have a very good relationship. He's very faithful to her and he takes care of her but unfortunately they're separated when he has to go fight napoleon and that's when he has one of his best like to me anyway until a lot of people like make you swoon lines um where you know the lord wellington who's a real historical character is his commanding officer in in the book and um he asks him uh, can a magician kill by magic and the, the text says, strange frowned. He seemed to dislike the question. And he says, I suppose a magician might, but a gentleman never would. And I just, <laughs> <sighs> you know, so um, <clears throat> he's definitely a good guy. Um, but this this magic that he pursues partially for his country and, and partially um, for good reasons does bring a lot of mayhem into his marriage. Um, it separates him from his wife it causes her to get kidnapped by the men with the thistle-down hair, which is a horrible thing that Arabella has to go through. And he drives himself pretty much mad trying to rescue her. It's a very, you know, grand romantic story in that way. And, you know, in, in doing so, you know, he meets a young woman, Flora Grace Deal, who he, you know, may have been tempted to have a dalliance with, but but he does not. And um, I think that I don't want to give away the entire ending, but I think that, you know, on the whole, on the whole, he's a pretty good Valentine. Um, I don't remember this part from the book, but it was in the TV show where he says that he shall teach all of the women and all of the poor men to do magic. So he um, that's him kind of going against the whole class thing, even though he had previously proclaimed himself to be a gentleman. 
And um, Jonathan Strange, def- definitely a pretty cool romantic hero for Valentine's Day. Who's next? Who is next? So next up is Marceline, the Vampire Queen. She is a vampire. Uh, and she lives in the land of Ooh. Uh, it is heavily implied that she has dated Princess Bubblegum. But uh, also in the show, she there's an episode where she seems to be dating a male vampire who is somewhat abusive. Uh, I'm not going to spoil that one. But so it seems that she is at the very least bisexual. And so as a potential feminist girlfriend, uh, she's a bit rough around the edges. She's a rocker girl. Uh, she plays a bass guitar shaped like an axe. Um, and, you know, she's got some issues with connecting. She likes to play practical jokes. She's sassy. She can be mean sometimes. And so if you can handle her kind of brassiness, then I think she'd make a great girlfriend. But she definitely is going to need her independence. And so, and she can probably be kind of mean. I bet if you got into a fight, she wouldn't be so nice. So... That doesn't make her unfeminist. But, you know, if you were my friend and you wanted to date her, I might be like, watch out, she's not always going to treat you so good. But some people like that in their (laughs) relationships. I'm much more into gentleness and kind of stable mutual support. So. Depends on your tolerance for drama on base what it sounds like. Yeah, I don't know if I would say that she's drama, but she, I mean, she's just an independent person, and I think that she really just needs her freedom and needs to kind of have her space to be with herself and find herself in times and, like, find her own peace. And so that's Marceline the Vampire Queen. Uh, Also, I mean, she's just really hot. Let's get real. (laughs) <laughs> her cartoon character. <laughs> I mean, her personality's hot, her style's hot, and yeah, I mean, you can't really see too much of the features of a cartoon character, so I guess you can project hotness onto her. She has a hot personality. I don't know. She might be fun. And she's, oh, but the other issue is that she's, uh, she's around a thousand years old, so she's got a little bit of the angel problem. So. She could probably give him a run for its money. his money, it sounds like. I don't know. He might be interested in her. She's not, like, super fun and boring like the girls that, of his time. <laughs> but she's also no slayer. Well, I mean, actually, she is kind of a slayer. She got her powers by staking other vamps. So he might be interested in her, but she's too good for him. <laughs> it's just funny because... I said at the top of the episode, no fan fiction, and I'm immediately, you know, suggesting a crossover for two <laughs> fandoms I know nothing about. So Angel Marceline Slash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to put a big no on that. Um, okay. It's not fair to okay. Marceline. <laughs> All right. That's fine. So next up on my list is Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. And I kind of want to talk about both him as a character and his character arc that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, when we first meet him, he is the bad boy, but as much as a bad boy as a Starfleet officer could be <laughs> in that right. way, um, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, putting this trope on 
um, even though it's one of the later series where they kind of move away from what I like to call the Roddenberryan Ubermensch, you know, the, the <laughs> next gen characters that have right. no flaws. Right. Um, in, in Deep Space Nine and Voyager, I could talk about this forever. The characters do have some, you know, shortcomings or, or personality issues. And, you know, when you first meet him, he's very flirty. He's, uh, you know, hitting on, um, one of the, officers on Voyager, they almost kind of hint that there's this kind of younger dude, older woman thing with him and Janeway, but they then they got afraid of it and they ran away. And eventually they pair him with uh, Bolana Torres, who is the half Klingon, half human, awesome, amazing chief of engineering who I idolized as a teenage girl. And what's interesting about this is that in some ways it's kind of like the reformed rake narrative. But not really, because you don't see him being that successful with women. He likes women, but it's not like he's with someone different every week throughout the series. And Balana is not this kind of demure, prim and proper woman who's who's out to tame him. It's it's more like they both have their own angst and issues, and they help each other through them. And they both kind of grow up and get more mature together as they take on you know, the responsibilities of, of marriage and eventually parenthood. So I think it's a, a really fun character arc for the character. And I think both him and Balana are kind of cool valentines. Yeah. So uh, who's next? Next up, we have Amy Pond from Doctor Who. And so I have have lots of feelings about Amy Pond because I think there are two Amy Ponds. I think there is Amy's first season and Amy's second season. And Amy's second season is uh, neutered Amy, as I like to call her. <laughs> when Amy is mm-hmm. first brought on as a companion, she's headstrong. She goes for what she wants. She does what she likes. She t- tells her truth, you know? And she prioritizes mm-hmm. herself and her fun. And the show doesn't seem to judge her for it. I don't know if the fandom did. I didn't really participate. But the show doesn't seem to judge her for her actions. Which is really nice, uh, and I don't. Rory doesn't happens. even judge her for her actions that much, right? Right. <laughs> but Rory is kind of a lapdog, and it, so I thought it was really. I feel I like, like that Rory. was kind of a theme. Yeah. Uh, you know, for a headstrong woman with a kind of lapdog boyfriend, who later becomes very powerful. I guess they start trying to kind of explore different roles for men, but they never stick with them on Doctor Who. Uh, unfortunately, they have to masculate the emasculated. <laughs> but um, one of the the episode where I really um, my heart really fell, and I felt like I really didn't like what they were doing to Amy anymore, is uh, the episode "The Girl Who Waited," and I don't remember the exact plot of the episode in too much detail. Amy is accidentally put under quarantine on a quarantine planet. Uh, and then there are two Amys in two different time streams. One Amy has been quarantined for something like uh, 36 years or something ridiculous like that because of the doctor's mistakes. And they need to recruit this Amy to find a younger Amy the Amy before they abandoned her for 20-something years. And so 
the doctor promises to be able to save both of them, both old vigilante Amy, who arguably is more experienced and battle-ready than young Amy, who is somewhat naive to what the doctor is capable of. And the doctor claims that he can save both of them. But when the time comes, he locks older Amy out. He tricked everybody, knowing that he was going to leave one of them. And he chose to leave knowing Amy behind. Mm -hmm. Or naive Amy. And so my heart breaks. And then also at the end of the episode, older Amy is totally cool with it somehow. uh, Which I think is uncharacteristic of angry older Amy. And then... uh, Very Moffaty. Very Moffat, yes. Like, oh, I'm a woman. Let me die for you. <laughs> Mafucked, as they would say on the internet. Oh, do they say that? I'm really happy that people are not, please. On uh, Doctor Who Circle Jerk, <laughs> they say that. <laughs> Good. They should say that everywhere. Moffat can't write women. Or can't let women thrive. And then, apparently, uh, younger Amy remembers old Amy... And then somehow is totally willing to continue traveling with the Doctor for the rest of the season. I hate this episode. I think it's a kind of synecdoche of the larger episode. That's really the larger interesting. Se- season arc where it's like, yeah. there's doppelganger Amy. Sorry, spoilers. But there's doppelganger Amy. Uh, and then there's real Amy who's just like a, a sad prisoner with a baby who is suddenly now like... A different person because she had a baby like a very characterologically different human and i think there's like so apparently like normal sassy amy is just the doppelganger and then she's gone like doppelganger amy gets to have tons of experiences and travel while real amy is just a prisoner and a mother and ultimately we're supposed to be happy that we end up with tortured sad amy as an audience than us ending up with, like, happy, adventurous Amy. And so it pisses me off because I loved having Amy as a character. I loved having a woman get to have fun and be, like, just a carefree adventurer like the Doctor gets to be sometimes or, like, other companions might get a chance to be. And so that's that's my take on it. I think this is really interesting, and I think that... um. My point of view since, I think, at least the beginning of the end of the Rose era, the beginning of the Martha era, is that Mm -hmm. Doctor Who is a good show, which is why I watch it, but Mm -hmm. I think the Doctor as a character is an asshole. He is. And that's why I think that Rory was a good character, because he calls the Doctor out on it often. And you say, you know, young Amy is naive as to what the Doctor is capable of. Rory sees right through him immediately in the in the first episode that rory you know travels with them when they go to venice and there's vampire fish women or something rory tells the doctor you're dangerous to people because you make them think that they can you know do anything and they want to try to prove themselves for you which fortunately is kind of what happens to clara um it's Mm -hmm. like he was predicting that years in advance but um Anyway, that's, you know, yes, Rory's a lapdog and stuff, but I just liked him because he always called the doctor out on his bullshit. Yeah. So, Amy, is Amy a good uh, partner? It depends which. 
first Amy season. Terrible girlfriend. We'll leave you night before your wedding to fuck someone new and exciting. <laughs> but awesome lady and totally lovable. Neuter Amy is just kind of naive and, and pushes the plot forward. So I guess if that's what you're looking for in a relationship, uh, you might find her attractive. If you're a bad person. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, yeah. If you want to, like, lock somebody in a prison cell and have, like, force them to have a baby. Have a time baby. <sighs> that one was more depressing than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's depressing. It pisses me off. <laughs> Who's next? Maybe somebody more... Uh, next is uh, Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road. Ah, and um, what I want to say about her is that there was a episode of After Hours on Cracked about Indiana Jones, where Katie was going on and on about how she wants to have sex with Indiana Jones and coming up with different clever ways to say that based on puns. And the guys are kind of titillated and then eventually annoyed by all of her double entendres. And but they point out that Indiana Jones might not be a good boyfriend because he's emotionally distant. And I think you could say the same thing about Furiosa, is that she seems like she'd be a hard person to get close to. She's guarded because of her past. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. She has a reason to be, but mm-hmm. I don't know if she'd be an easy person to um, to be in a relationship with because of that. Yeah, I think that's similar a bit to Marceline, uh, who might also be somewhat guarded while still being very sensitive. Except I think that Furiosa is even more kind of on top of her her feelings and more kind of uh, a wall between her emotions and her interactions. But she would be very protective. Mm-hmm. She would make sure that you were safe mm-hmm. and that the right thing got done. She'd beat up bad guys. She would beat the yeah. fuck out of bad guys. She would. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would I would date Furiosa, personally. Uh, I don't care if she's cold. I would definitely, you know, date her and do what she work towards whatever goal she's working towards because I trust her. I would be her sidekick for sure. I'd watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for a brief period at least. I don't know if I would settle down with Furiosa. I think she's... Uh... Well, I hope that she would appreciate your sense of humor and then it would it would work out. <laughs> thanks, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah. And then finally, I think we have what... Maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but maybe one of our at least favorite fictional characters of 2015. Yes. I mean, I know we're in 2016 now, but. And also I feel like your least problematic heartthrob on our whole list. Is Trish from Jessica Jones. Yes, Trish Walker from the television show, not mm-hmm. from the comic books, who is, I think, I have not read Walker. It. In the comic book. Her name was Patsy when she was a child star, and she goes by Trish as an adult to kind of right. um, differentiate. Exactly. Because she's moved away from that. Yeah. Trish Walker, beautiful human being, strong, supportive, loving, best sister ever. And she's, an, she's a woman who's had a dark past. She's been traumatized by her mm-hmm. mother. She had... It's implied that she had a problem with drugs. Well... It's said that she had a problem with drugs, implied that she got better from it somehow. And she's there in the shit with Jessica 
supporting her through her PTSD while not subsuming her identity to a support role. I mean, it's just unfortunate that, you know, her boyfriend turned out to be a villain for lots of people. Sorry, spoilers. Garbage person. Yes, sorry. Spoiler alert for Jessica Jones. (laughs) So That's not the biggest spoiler. That's not like the spoiler, but it's one of them. Yeah, but let's talk about that story arc. Why why don't we? Let's dive into that. So Mm -hmm. Simpson is best when he's listening to Trish. I was going to make a joke about the scene where he's going down on her, but I guess we're not going to go yeah. with be above the fray. <laughs> I don't know. Is that below the fray? I mean, they, yeah, he's definitely his best when he's in service to Trish. Um, <laughs> they constantly have to tell him to shut up. And when he listens, he's good. When he can listen to Jessica and he can listen to Trish, he's good and effective and useful. He is least useful when he is acting on his own or with other dudes. Mm-hmm. And I think also the story arc of their relationship, Simpson and Trish, it speaks to her character that she's able to take him in after their experience together. But mm-hmm. it turns out that Simpson is an unstable and selfish man in general who does not learn from his experiences. He gets whooped time and again, trying to go for Kilgrave himself. And if only he listened to Jessica and Trish to trust Jessica as the only person who could get the job done, he's like, no, I'm going to crack out on pills and beat the fuck out of the women I care for, all in the service of claiming to protect them. And ultimately, when Trish takes the super drugs, she does it not out of this Superman goal, but she does it because she knows that it's the only way to help her friend and save herself. She beats the hell out of her abuser in a very satisfying scene. (laughs) Trish and Jessica beat the hell out of Trish's abuser. Mm -hmm. And their love and sisterhood is what saves them in the end. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, it's a really lovely story of sisterhood. There's some unfortunate implications that the reason that Simpson was vulnerable to going down the path that he did was because of possibly PTSD for previous combat experience, right? Hmm. But I hadn't considered I, I that I don't angle. know if you can... I don't know how many excuses you can make for a person, so... I think uh, a PTSD read on Simpson is really interesting and really fascinating and might be... A, it's a valid take on it that I am not equipped right now mm-hmm. to address, so, uh, and I wouldn't want to shortchange it uh, analysis-wise. So my first defensive response, which is to say, like, don't make excuses for abusers, uh, mm-hmm. I think could be countered with a thoughtful analysis. Yep, I would agree with that. So we hope that everyone listening has a wonderful, happy Valentine's Day. Enjoy. Yes, you can find out more about our podcast at feministcoffeehour.com. We're on Twitter at femcoffeepod. You can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. And we would really love if you would give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Mm-hmm. We've started to get a few of them. Um, we're Thank excited. You. We have statistics. We know that you're listening. <laughs> and we know that, <laughs> we know that, um, you know, many of you have been listening and haven't yet left us a review. So if you want to give us a Valentine's Day present, 
please give us a rating on iTunes. Also, if you're thinking of signing up for Apple Music, uh, follow the link at the end of the show notes, and uh, we'll get a little kickback from that. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. And thanks for listening. Yeah, happy Valentine's Day. theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.